What manner of monster is this, which moves so suddenly in my path? As the son of Fu Manchu, I have been witness to much, but never anything like this. What can be this creature's role in the sequence of events which has now occupied twelve hours of my life, which began with perfect symmetry beneath the Florida sun? Hello everyone and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide to the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of a 70s swamp-based monster comic. Today on the program, I will be discussing an appearance of Man-Thing in Master of Kung Fu number 19. How does a Master of Kung Fu come to be in a Florida swamp? You'll find the answer to this question and much more later in the program, but first... I'd like to give a shout-out to The Collective. Um, do people still say shout-out? Or more precisely, should people still say shout-out? Uh, I've never particularly cared for it myself, but apparently I still say it. All of this will be cut out and no one will ever hear it because <laughs> this is why I stay on script. So anyway, I'd like to publicly acknowledge The Collective. Uh, the Collective is a group of um, superhero podcasters that share and collaborate and basically spread the love of comics throughout the land. Recently, they've asked the Nexus to be part of it, and it's, um, it's really a great honor. Seriously, these are, uh, these are some great podcasts and great podcasters, and, um, and to be associated with them is, is really great. There's so many wonderful shows that are part of this. There's uh, uh, Into the Night, it's a Moon Knight podcast, Last Sons of Krypton, a Superman podcast, Inner Demons, a Ghost Rider podcast, and there, there's, there's many more. I, I can't list them all out right now, but if you go to the website nexusofallrealities.com, you'll see a list on the homepage and a separate page that uh, gives a little bit of description of each one as well. I do encourage you to go check them out. They're all really good stuff and uh, highly recommended. Also, I'll be playing trailers on this and upcoming episodes, and I'll try to cycle through them all. But thank you to The Collective and all the members of The Collective. You are entertainers and scholars, one and all. Thanks again for enlisting me in your ranks. And now, the year was 1974, and in the basement of a Philadelphia home, a young man put a novelty song on his 45 record player, and as the music would slowly build, the young man would bow to the empty room, and then, as the song exploded into joyous disco soul fusion, he began to kick and chop the air. Everybody was Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I was that young man. And I don't know about everybody, but as for me, I was definitely kung fu fighting. And I can say without fear of contradiction that those cats were fast as lightning. I admit, I admit it was a little bit frightening, but they fought with such expert timing. It's hard, it's hard to describe the enormity of the kung fu craze in the 1970s. For a short time, martial arts were pervasive in the United States. It was it was everywhere. It was in movies and on TV and on t-shirts and on the radio and of course, comic books. I don't know exactly why it became so popular so quickly. Perhaps it's because at the time it seemed like this new exotic dance that was beautiful to look at but had the extra bonus advantage of kicking people in the face. Uh, it's a wonderful thing if you think about it. Again, it seemed as if it came out of nowhere, but in reality, of course, that wasn't the case. Various forms of martial arts were known in the United States for decades. Uh, the first karate dojo opened in the United States in 1945, 
Uh, so it goes back quite a way. And by the late 1950s and early 1960s, martial arts were being used in film and TV and talked about in novels, and its popularity as a discipline was growing. In popular culture on TV and film, this usually took the form of, um, of judo or jujitsu. Early examples of this in fight scenes, there would be some, you know, rather awkward throws and tumbles by the combatants. Really tame by our standards today, but this was really visually interesting. Much better than the standard, you know, two guys punching each other like boxers you'd see in the past. And with the rise of spy movies in the 1960s, martial arts were a natural thing to utilize to make fight scenes look more exciting and seem, you know, modern. Odd Job in James Bond's Goldfinger was a master of karate, for instance, and on TV shows like The Avengers, the British Avengers, Emma Peel was skilled in both karate and kung fu. Wild Wild West showcased karate, often by the heroes and the villains, and of course, there was the Green Hornet in 1966. Green Hornet was a pseudo-superhero show made by the same folks who produced the 1960s Batman, where the main character's superpower was, and in, I could be wrong about this, but I believe it was the ability to stand around being arrogant while his chauffeur kicked all the bad guys' asses. <laughs> that chauffeur, by the way, was a young, unknown Chinese actor named Bruce Lee. I know there are people who have really fond memories of that show. I was never a big fan. But... Go look for clips of Bruce Lee as Kato, and boy, howdy, you will not be disappointed. The man was great. And speaking of Bruce Lee, I suppose I should talk about the TV show Kung Fu. Kung Fu was a TV series that ran on ABC from 1972 to 1975. It starred David Carradine as the half-Chinese Shaolin priest named Kwai Chang Kane that wanders the Old West in search of enlightenment and redemption while helping those in need. There are some conflicting reports, but it's pretty much agreed upon that Bruce Lee conceived at least a version of this show, and he was meant to star in it, but ABC executives were wary about an Asian actor in the lead role, and so gave it to Carradine, who was definitely white, but unique enough looking to pass as, you know, quote-unquote foreign. That sort of thing, whitewashing characters, was and is still a problem in entertainment. And it's really, you know, shitty that Bruce Lee was sort of passed over like this. Full disclosure, though, Kung Fu, the TV show, is one of my favorite series of all time. I think it's unique and different and has a great message of, of peace and understanding, uh, of helping others and only using violence as, uh, as a defense and never as an attack. It also has good intentions and actually used many Asian American actors in various recurring and supporting roles. But yeah, even though Carradine is very good in the role of Kane, it does cast a shadow over the series knowing how Bruce Lee was a little screwed. That being said, after he was screwed over, Bruce Lee went back to Hong Kong and made The Big Boss and Fists of Fury and Way of the Dragon, so all's well that ends well. Uh, tough call. <laughs> uh, look, it's a difficult thing to reconcile. You know, the things you like with the way things should be. In a perfect world, Bruce Lee should have been given the role of Kwai Jan Kane or something similar, but in the 1970s, it was not a perfect world. Something I'll talk about when I get to the comic after the break. But suffice to say, Lee made the best of a difficult situation. 
making classic films, and opening schools dedicated to kung fu both in Hong Kong and in California. And in 1973, unfortunately after he had, he had passed away, Enter the Dragon was released in the United States. And that is when everything changed. Everything I've been talking about up till now was sort of the groundwork. Kung Fu was around, but not exactly an all-pervasive craze. Enter the Dragon changed that. In just a year's time, there were a dozen movies, uh, first imported from Hong Kong and Korea and other countries, but then low-budget affairs produced and filmed in the United States. TV shows started using and talking more about Kung Fu and Karate. It became a staple in fight scenes and training montages. Private karate, kung fu, judo, and jiu-jitsu schools started opening in strip malls, and after-school programs were being added to elementary and high school curriculum. And there was a lot of bowing in gym classes. And of course, the odd novelty disco song being played on the radio. For me, I loved the kung fu thing at the time. I never went further than, you know, pretend chopping or doing straight leg kicks yelling, Yeehaw! <laughs> but but I wore t-shirts with Chinese dragons and put up pro- posters of Bruce Lee, bare-chested holding nunchucks in my room. I never actually, you know, <laughs> took classes or tried to learn it. I just thought it looked cool and had neat imagery. Yeah, yeah. cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation is a very fine line to straddle. And I confess, I walked that line in my younger days, straying from side to side from time to time. But in my defense, I was a stupid kid who just liked cool things. How stupid, you may ask? Well, I and a few friends once bought throwing stars from a local thrift store. Yes, the 1970s, when store owners would sell weapons to children. Anyway, (laughs) we had a jolly old time, throwing them at trees and houses and occasionally each other, pretending to be Shaolin monks or ninjas. How I'm still alive with both of my eyes intact is truly a miracle and beyond my comprehension. The 1970s kung fu craze was short-lived. Only a few years at its peak, but its influence has lingered. Martial arts are part of the cultural landscape now. A whole generation of artists grew up with this craze and have implemented it into their art. I'm looking at you, Tarantino. (laughs) But he's just an obvious example. Uh, Try to think of an action film that doesn't use martial arts in some form. And if there was no 70s kung fu craze, would we have things like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Would we have Power Rangers? One of those is a good thing. In other non-entertainment examples, how many kids in this country, the United States, take karate lessons? Hint, a lot. The 1970s kung fu craze is still influencing us, but now on a more unconscious level. It's integrated into the way we do things, and in a way, everybody is still kung fu fighting. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I come back, we're going to talk about Master of Kung Fu. Hey there! Do you like comic books? Do you like superhero TV and movies? Well, come on over and check out the Capes and Lunatics podcast. We have such shows as Capes and Lunatics and Super Connectivity, where we cover everything new and current and popular in the world of superheroes. And we also have episode-by-episode reviews of the Marvel Netflix shows, and a monthly discussion of everything current on the DC Comics character Nightwing, and a few other surprises all the time. So come join us for the Capes and Lunatics podcast. 
Before I begin, I suppose I should give a little background on Master of Kung Fu and the main character Shang-Chi. On a personal note, I had never read this comic. I mean, obviously I was aware of its existence, and even back in the 1970s I knew it was around, but I never actually read it, and I'm not exactly sure why. As I said in the opening, I was all in when it came to the Kung Fu craze, and, and I read other Kung Fu comics, Iron Fist for one, but this one passed me by, and that's a good thing and a bad thing, which I'll get to in a moment. Now, Marvel has never been a company to shy away from jumping on a bandwagon or two, or 30. Roughly around the time of the Kung Fu craze, the exploitation craze was just ramping up, and so, you know, Luke Cage was born. And immediately to capitalize on Kung Fu and martial arts, Marvel created both Iron Fist and Shang-Chi. Iron Fist Danny Rand was a more traditional hero, you might say, <laughs> in that he was a white guy and rich and learned to and learned an Eastern art, but of course, learned it better than all those native-born people. This was a problem with superheroes at the time. Doctor Strange has a similar type of origin. But Shang-Chi was a little bit different. He was an actual Chinese man. Well, half Chinese because it's the 1970s and you wanted to embrace change, but not all the change all at once. Hell, Spock couldn't even be all Vulcan, and that's a made-up race. But anyway... This was a good thing, was and is a good thing. A main character of Asian descent in a major mainstream comic in the United States. That's cool. But there are problematic issues in these issues. The first and most glaring is Fu Manchu. In the comic, Shang-Chi is the son of Dr. Fu Manchu. He's raised to believe that he, Fu Manchu, is benevolent and good. But when Shang-Chi learns the truth about his father, he begins a mission to thwart his plans. All that sounds fine on the surface, till you get to know some of the backstory of the character of Dr. Fu Manchu. Marvel got the rights to publish characters from Sax Romer. Now, if you're not familiar, Sax Romer was a writer from the early part of the 20th century whose most famous creation was Dr. Fu Manchu, a Chinese supervillain bent on world domination. He is the very epitome of yellow peril. The idea that Orientals, oh, I'm using air quotes, are attempting to take over the Western world by crime and drugs and working hard, apparently. If you want to get a feel for how Fu Manchu is depicted in the stories about him, it's helpful to hear the tale of how Sax Romer allegedly invented the character. It goes like this. Without any prior understanding or knowledge of the Chinese culture, Sax Romer asked a Ouija board what was the most dangerous competition to the white man, and the board spelled out, Chinaman, and then he immediately created Dr. Fu Manchu to embody that threat. Now, this story is probably apocryphal and didn't really happen, but the fact that it is told, and told by Sax Romer, says a lot about the mindset of the time, which was, hold on, let me check my notes for the appropriate word, awful. It was freaking awful. The series was even criticized at the time, in the early 20th century, by Chinese communities in the United States for what was seen as negative ethnic stereotyping. One critic writing on the Fu Manchu series, uh, Jack Adrian, said, quote, Romer's own racism was careless and casual, a mere symptom of his time, unquote. And of course, in spite of this, or I don't know, because of it, the series was incredibly popular with 13 books in the series and several movies and radio adaptations, usually with a white man in yellow face playing Fu Manchu. 
and look. The sordid details of the way Asian people have been stereotyped in this way is immensely detrimental and became ingrained in how people of Asian descent were depicted in film and TV and novels for decades. And this, this background is what's hanging over the comic when it comes to be written in the 1970s. Now, as I've said on this show before, the 1970s were a real transitional period for attitudes in America. It was simultaneously progressive and regressive. The civil rights and equal rights movements were being acknowledged and embraced, but the way it was being talked about and, the, and, and explained, it was still using language that was outdated and harbored meanings that were tied to previous eras. And so even though a person or a character was saying or, or intending to say and do the right thing, it came across as insincere, especially to a modern ear. And sometimes, because of that language, the message gets lost. Now, when I read or watch old media like this, I try to put aside the more questionable language or depictions and look more towards the intent of the piece rather than how uh, the intent is stated or presented. That being said, some things can be a bit cringeworthy from time to time, especially at times like this when a character like Fu Manchu is being used. This comic was written by Steve Englehart. I don't think for a moment that Steve Englehart was a racist or trying to depict racist ideas. Just the opposite, in fact. I think Englehart was intending to be inclusive and respectful of the culture. Hell, Steve Englehart wrote one of my favorite runs in Captain America that dealt with issues of race and patriotism and standing up for injustice and just being a good person. So there's no way, I think, even for a second, that he was intending to be hurtful in his depiction of Chinese people in the comic. But what he does do is use old, outdated language and stereotypes that were so integrated into the entertainment world, it hangs over the story like, like a specter. And I admit, at times, it's really hard to overlook some of that. I put out on social media uh, a little while ago asking people how they felt about this comic, and almost everyone said the same thing that it's a very entertaining comic with some dated problematic issues. One commenter pointed out that in later issues, there was a frequent letter writer that was happy for representation, but also disturbed by the presentation. And I guess that's where I'm at too. I've, at this point, I've read the first few issues leading up to, and then several issues past the issue with Man-Thing. This is a podcast about Man-Thing, in case you've forgotten, just a friendly reminder. And having read uh, 10 or so issues, I really like the character of Shang-Chi. And I do like how the story is progressing, with Shang-Chi learning to be something more than a weapon and becoming more spiritual, something we'll see uh, a bit of in this issue. And I'll talk about it after the synopsis. So looking past the problematic material with an eye on the author's intent, I can see how this could have been seen as a very influential comic. The good of it does outweigh the bad. And I guess what sticks with me is that the bad, ah, it's really bad. In time, Marvel would lose the rights to Sax Romer's characters, and Shang-Chi would go through some really dramatic changes in reimagining because uh, of the Sax Romer rights issues and it being so tied to Shang-Chi's origins. Reprintings were hard to come by, and for a long time, not many people got a chance to see and know Shang-Chi. Uh, and he didn't get a chance to evolve in the way that, say, Daddy Rand's Iron Fist did. 
But that's probably going to change very, very soon. Marvel, of course, has announced that there's going to be a Shang-Chi movie for the, uh, for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And if the past tells us anything, he will no doubt become a massively profitable and beloved character. Also, it looks as if the Fu Manchu aspect is being dropped in favor of the Mandarin, which is uh, an improvement? I don't know. Time will tell. So let's get on with the comic. The Hands of Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. Number 19. Retreat. Cover dated August 1974. It was written by Steve Englehart. Pencils by Paul Galassi. Inked by Al Milgram. Lettered by Tom Orschowski. Colored by Stan Goldberg. Edited by Roy Thomas. Shang-Chi finds himself deep in the swamp. Mere hours ago, he had come to Florida to thwart his father Fu Manchu's nefarious plot to poison America's automotive gas supply with mind-controlling hallucinogens. Yes, really, that was, that, that was the plan. Shang-Chi succeeded, but in the process he found himself under the influence of the hallucinogen called Mimosa. The Mimosa was administered in the traditional way an elegant brunch featuring scrambled eggs and finger sandwiches. Wait, hold on, I'm being told it's a different kind of mimosa. Regardless, Shang-Chi be trippin', yo! For hours, he has been pursued by two master assassins, who, despite his drug state, he was able to best in hand-to-hand -hand combat and whom he believes to have killed. He then feels shame and guilt for doing so. Shang-Chi then comes to pawn what he thinks is a snake, but in reality, it's part of the man-thing. Although not specifically explained, I assume it's a finger or a tendril, as this is a family comic. Shang-Chi then attempts to fight Man-Thing, but only finds himself comically engulfed in the swamp monster's goo, to the point of being embedded sideways through the Man-Thing's stomach. Fortunately, a passing shaman named Lu Sun emerges and pulls Shang-Chi out of Man-Thing's body. After taking a moment to comfort Man-Thing, Lu Sun then begins to give spiritual advice and an impromptu therapy session to Shang-Chi. And just when they're on the verge of a breakthrough, the master assassins arrive, very much not dead. They attack Shang-Chi, but he is now stronger because of the insight given to him by Lu Sun. Even so, Shang-Chi then steps in quicksand. It happens. But just as the assassins are set to strike the killing blow, Man-Thing arrives in the nick of time. The assassins attack Man-Thing, full of bravado, and as everyone knows, bravado is fueled by fear. And anyone who knows fear burns at the Man-Thing's touch. And so the two master assassins explode into flames. That's new. In the aftermath, as the bodies smolder in a mini bonfire, Man-Thing walks off as Shang-Chi sets Lu Sun to rest beneath a tree. The two men have one last cryptic exchange before Shang-Chi too walks off as the first rays of dawn emerge. So this is really interesting. If I'm being honest, Man-Thing doesn't need to be in this story at all. The real nitty-gritty of the story is the meeting between Shang-Chi and Lu Sun. Man-Thing's purpose here could very easily have been replaced by I don't know, substituting a vision of, uh, of, say, a dragon or a demon, and the same result could have been achieved. That being said, crossovers were quite common at this time, usually to boost sales of a particular character. 
If Captain America's sales dipped, for instance, and Iron Man's were doing well, just have Iron Man show up in one of Cap's stories and voila, a much needed boost. Now, I couldn't find anything concrete to back this up, but I really have no doubt that's what was going on here. And I assume because Man-Thing was an established character at this point and gaining, you know, a following, decent following, it was he who was boosting Shang-Chi's sales and establishing him in the Marvel Universe, you know, in general. So company mandates happen and it can't be easy for a writer and an artist just to stop on a dime and change their story to incorporate this kind of thing. I highly doubt that Man-Thing had featured in the long-term story plan for Shang-Chi. But that's where the interesting thing in this issue happens. The previous few stories for Shang-Chi have really focused on his realization that his father is a criminal mastermind. So the premise is that Shang-Chi has been raised in not isolation exactly, but in an insulated atmosphere where he's taught to believe that Fu Manchu is, is a benevolent overlord and the world just doesn't get him. Shang-Chi is then sent off to assassinate one of his father's enemies, but in the course of doing so, he comes to realize that Fu Manchu is a supervillain, and the man he kills is a good guy. And uh, he's been racked with guilt about it ever since, and has vowed vengeance to end Fu Manchu's reign of terror. This story is, um, is a real turning point for Shang-Chi's development. It's the first time he comes to acknowledge uh, a spiritual path, rather than simply a violent path, a revenge path. Oh, there'll still be violence, but Shang-Chi's character begins to become uh, less aggressive and adapts a more defensive and protective role. This in the long run will suit the character better and open up more options for storytelling. But as for this story, I find it really interesting in the final battle between he and, and the Master Assassins, uh, Jenkin and Dahar are the names of the Master Assassins, by the way, Shang-Chi could very easily have defeated them. Uh, but because, because it's a Man-Thing crossover, he needed to be sidelined so that Manny could save the day. And so, quicksand! Now, I don't think it's used much anymore as a plot device, but if you were to ask me, as a kid in the 1970s, how common was quicksand in the United States, I'd have said, Oh, it's everywhere. It's a national emergency. You can't swing a cat without it, you know, getting stuck in quicksand. It's a menace. It's a menace to our society. <laughs> Seriously, the use of quicksand was copious. Uh, you know, used in the Six Million Dollar Man to Gilligan's Island. I would have said it was in the top five leading causes of death in America. But I digress. As I said, Shang-Chi needed to be removed from the fight so Man-Thing could help out. And I really like the fact that we're told that, we're told specifically that Dahar and Jenkin are full of bravado and therefore full of fear because no one would need to use bravado if they weren't afraid. Uh, a little dig at toxic masculinity long before that term was ever used or conceived of. And so they burn. Burn at the Man-Thing's touch and boy howdy do they, do they burn. In previous Man-Thing stories you would see some smoke melting, the occasional flame, but these guys go up like they're covered in napalm. It's really interesting when another writer takes over a character uh, just to see the extremes that they go to. Uh, anyway, back to Shang-Chi and Lu Sun. I find the exchange between the two really fascinating. First of all, for the fact that I didn't think this is the direction the story was going to go. I thought this was just going to be the standard meet-up story where the two heroes fight for a bit and then team up to beat the bad guy. 
And in a sense, that's what we get, but in a really, really different way. Also, we're, we're treated to some nonviolent philosophy, which is, which is always fun. Luson at one point says, One man may overcome another. One army may overcome another. But the world is not changed. Men will always contend. Violence breeds violence. No one is immune. This is to get Chang-Chi to acknowledge that the path he's on is, uh, one, uh, is, is a cycle that he's never going to break out of. Unless he approaches his uh, situation and his, his path in a different way. And immediately after saying that, he's struck by arrows because he's with Shang-Chi. He is injured simply because he is in the vicinity of someone else's conflict. It's pretty good. As writers, we're always told to show and don't tell. Well, Engelhart told and then showed. And it works. It emphasizes the idea that unless Shang-Chi changes his, his ways and his, his attitude, people are going to get hurt. People around him are going to get hurt. Now, Lu Sun is an obvious stand-in for David Carradine's Kwai Jang Kane in Kung Fu. Um, a wandering barefoot sage dispensing wisdoms and aphorisms. Hell, he even kind of looks like David Carradine. And that in and of itself isn't all that interesting. Comics have a long history of cribbing from other material in popular culture and, and various other mediums when it's needed. But this is the only appearance of Lu Sun, not, not only in Master of Kung Fu, but in all of Marvel. This is his only appearance ever, randomly appearing in Man-Thing's Swamp to have a chat and pull a man out of a monster's body. That's, that's kind of weird. And speaking of weird, he had to pull a man out of a monster's body. <laughs> I really enjoyed this sequence. The depiction of a man attempting to kung fu fight a globular mass of swamp gunk while hallucinating is, for me, just deeply satisfying on many levels. Shang-Chi ends up feet first through Man-Thing with his legs dangling out the back and his torso and arms, you know, kind of limp, uh, hanging out of his stomach. And Man-Thing just goes about his business like there was not a human embedded in his body. It is just, uh, chef kiss beautiful. The art is overall really quite good. Paul Galaney's figures are physical and dynamic, and Man-Thing is depicted in this kind of, kind of muscular and imposing way. In fact, in one shot of Man-Thing on the splash page, he's sort of hunkered down in the swamp, and he looks uh, animalistic, feral, and um, that's something you don't typically see with Man-Thing, and I like it. It's, it's, it's different and, and, and really striking. Overall, I really enjoyed this story. It doesn't do much for progressing Man-Thing's story, but to be fair, it wasn't meant to. He's really just a passive observer here, and... Uh, well, he does get to napalm some bad guys in the end, so that's cool, I guess. So, but this, you know, this could have been just a throwaway story for Man-Thing and Shang-Chi as well. Just a, you know, silly company-mandated crossover with no real ramifications, but some growth for Shang-Chi is incorporated, and thought was put into making it more, and to fit in with the long, complex narrative that is Master of Kung Fu. And that's pretty cool. So that's it, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comics, so please send me an email to nexus at daddyoak.com or hit me up on Twitter at nexusofall or leave a comment on individual episodes on the website nexusofallrealities.com. Next time on the program, back to the main series with Man-Thing number 9, Death Watch.
Uh, that'll be coming up in two weeks' time, and until then... Oh, <laughs> I guess <laughs> I should mention, I was going to drop the rather ridiculous tagline of Keep It Swampy, but uh, three people have now expressed enjoyment of it, and one person even hashtagged it. So it seems, at least for the time being, it will have to remain. And so, until next time, keep it swampy. You've been listening to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elf production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. The show can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. You can contact the show via email at nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at Nexus of All. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained?